have you heard of St. Columba? He was an Irish missionary to Scotland. He lived around 500 years after Christ. He's the patron saint of my hometown, uh, so there's a, a cathedral named after him, a school, a park, uh, so on. Uh, one account of Columba's life says that he spent a long life of incessant Christian labour. He died on Iona at the age of 75 on a Lord's Day morning. Part of his work had been copying out the Psalms and the Gospels. Uh, no printing presses in those days. The Bible simply had to be copied out by hand. And the last words he copied out were from verse 10 of this Psalm. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And he couldn't have chosen a better testimony. A, a long life of incessant labour... Yes, and yet he could say, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Uh, now, I'm sure that, that those are not words that we're going to disagree with. But in the everyday stresses and trials of life, in our concern for, for, for the, the cause of God, can we not be guilty at times of thinking and speaking as if this wasn't true? As if those who sought the Lord did lack good things at times. When we think, if only I had X out of all that I need. And so I trust that if that has been the case with some of us, this psalm might remind us of the amazing privileges we have as God's people. And leave us coming away tonight saying, of course, what was I thinking? No, I don't need that. Truly, those who seek the Lord don't lack any good thing. And if God hasn't given me that thing, it's because I don't need it. I trust it will be an encouragement to us as, as we look as well, perhaps apprehensively to the year ahead. Reminding ourselves that whatever happens in 2024, those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing and as we go through this psalm we want to hear it as a psalm sung by Jesus uh, Jesus did sing it when he was on earth and as we think of of what it would have meant for Jesus singing this psalm uh, hopefully we'll see it as a psalm which speaks uh, in many ways primarily of him uh, we want to do that not, not just because it's a good way to approach the Psalms anyway, uh, but uh, particularly because of verse 20, uh, verse 20, which John quotes in chapter 19 of his gospel as being a prophecy about Jesus, that none of his bones will be broken. And so if verse 20 is speaking about Jesus, uh, and the New Testament tells us that it is, uh, I think we should at least be asking the question whether the rest of the psalm is about Jesus as well. Uh, and so with that in mind, we begin firstly with praise. Uh, so, so praise is the first theme we want to look at. Uh, the previous psalm was all about praise, reasons for praise, and this psalm begins with praise. And the first verse is easy to read, it's easy to sing, it's easy to memorise, but it's not so easy to put into practice. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall sometimes, no, continually be in my mouth. Uh, when are we to bless God? 
when everything is going well, when we or those we love are healthy, when we're not in the midst of a crisis, when the shadow of death isn't looming. No, all the time. When the Lord gives us good things, we're to bless Him. And when He takes those things away, we're to bless Him. As Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians, some of the boys and girls will know it. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. Always. Always. Perhaps we condemn the unbelievers around us for only being interested in God if he gives them material things. But there are levels of praise go up and down based on how our lives are going. So there is a challenge here. Do we praise the Lord at all times or do we just sing that we do so it is a challenge but but it's also the amazing truth that our God is is constant uh, and so we can rely on him he, he is the one constant uh, thing person who we can rely on no matter what our circumstances are Verse 2 says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. In other words, he's the one we put our confidence in. Not in other people, not in things, not in achievements. All those other things will let us down at times. They'll all leave us feeling empty. I read during the week the, the desperately sad account of Ruth Perry. That's the primary school teacher uh, who took her own life. In England, it came after her school, which had always been rated as outstanding, received an inspection report uh, which said it was inadequate. It was the school she attended as a child. She came back to take up the position of deputy head. A year later, she became head teacher and uh, stayed in that position for 13 years until her death. Christmas morning last year she woke at 2.15 in the morning she wrote out her thoughts they were later found by her family and in one note she said she had given her life to the school she had given her life to the school it is so desperately sad and yet it does bring with it the reminder that if we give our lives to anything other than God they will let us down sooner or later they will fail us so do you have a God this evening who you can praise at all times? A God who you can turn to in bad times as well as good. A God who you will still worship if, like Job, everything is taken from you. And if we do have a God like that, how our hearts should ache for those around us who don't. Whatever they might have in terms of wealth, status, relationships, houses, things that we might wish we had. When the crisis comes, those things won't be able to help them at all. But what if you as a Christian don't feel like praising? I will bless the Lord at all times. Um, being honest, we don't feel like that at all times. Well, one of the things to notice about the praise of these opening verses is that it's not purely private. It's not purely private praise. The psalm begins with the commitment, I will. 
Uh, There are a number of these I will statements in the Psalms. I will trust, I will meditate, uh, and here I will bless. Uh, Someone uh, wrote a book about them once, uh, the I wills of the Psalms. Uh, And there's a sense of determination to that. Whatever those around me are doing, I will bless. And that's important. We need to be those who don't follow the crowd. Uh, Whatever those around us are doing on the Lord's Day, uh, we say, I will bless. Uh, We need to have the determination, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, To be able to say these are our principles and we're going to stick to them no matter what. And yet, true praise cannot stay private True praise cannot stay private. Look at verse 3. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So I will is followed by let us. And there are more of those let us statements in scripture as well. You can make a list of the I will statements. You can make a list of the let us statements Uh, i remember my minister growing up preached a series on them and he had to clarify every week that he wasn't talking about lettuce uh, but he was talking about let us so i will and let us and i think it's important to hold these two phrases together uh, not to stress the i will to the extent that we forget the let us because the let us reminds us that we're part of something bigger than ourselves And that lets us celebrate God's goodness to others. Uh, That even if if we feel we're not seeing uh, many answers to our prayers, that we can rejoice in in others who are seeing answers to their prayers. Uh, As the Apostle Paul says, when one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Uh, Not being jealous that the thing didn't happen to us, but rejoicing with them. John Witherspoon was a a Scottish minister in the 1700s. He moved to America, became the president of a theological college and ended up being the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. Uh, One day one of his neighbours burst into his office and said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. The story was he'd been driving his horse and trap. The, the horse gets spooked, the, the buggy gets smashed on the rocks, but, but he was able to walk away. Satan wants to isolate us and, and separate us, whereas true praise calls us uh, together and calls to others and says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. There are times we don't feel like praising Times we don't feel like coming to church, perhaps. Uh, Maybe particularly when it's dark and wet. Uh, Maybe we're feeling a bit down as well. But those are actually the times we particularly need to come. Because gathering together with other believers helps us praise. Gathering together with other believers helps us praise. After all, if you don't feel like praising God... Will you feel more like praising him if you stay at home? Or will you feel more like praising him if you come together with God's people? 
Uh, surely our, our, our own testimony and the testimony of, of believers through the ages of the Psalms, it's, it's that coming together encourages us to praise even when uh, we haven't felt like it ourselves. And praise has a knock-on effect. Often praise leads to our doubts being assured. Uh, so we thought about praise uh, and we come now to assurance. Uh, the, the praise in verses 1 to 6 is followed by the assurance of verses 7 through 10. Assurance in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord Jesus himself encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Assurance in verse 8 that the one who takes refuge in the Lord is blessed. Assurance in verse 9 that those who fear him have no lack. And assurance, to quote the title of Spurgeon's sermon on verse 10, that the lions may lack but the children are satisfied. So where does this assurance come from or what is it based on? Well, it's based on the experience of the one who wrote these words. Uh, the, the title of the psalm, uh, which those words in capitals, uh, they're simply the first verse in the original language. Uh, they tell us when David wrote these words. He wrote them after he had changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out. Uh, the details, if you want to look at them later, are in 1 Samuel 21. And here David acknowledges that it wasn't his dubious scheme that saved him, but God. So the psalm points us backwards to, to God's deliverance of his people in the past. But it wants to point us to an even greater deliverance than David's. In verse 20 we have what could simply be a general truth or sorry, verse 19, uh, could simply be a general truth. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But who is the him who the Lord delivers? Is it just the righteous in general? Well, look at verse 20. Who is the him? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And we're told in the New Testament that that's a prophecy about Jesus. So the righteous man whose deliverance we celebrate in this psalm is ultimately the Lord Jesus, raised from the dead on the third day. And that's what gives us confidence that God will deliver us. How do we know in verse 22 that the Lord redeems the life of his servants? Because he did it for Jesus. How do we know, uh, verse 22 again, that none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned? How will you know if you die tonight that you will not be condemned? Because Jesus was condemned in your place. There is no condemnation left for you. And so our, our assurance comes from the cross and the resurrection. And so we don't look at the psalm and say, well, it's not really about us, it's about, it's about Jesus. We say, well, because it's, it's true of Jesus, because it was true first and foremost of Jesus, then we can be absolutely confident that it will be true of us. And again, this is an assurance we receive particularly as we come together. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints. 
It's one worshipper calling out to others. Uh, sadly, those are our blessings that those who, who swap online church for real church are missing out on. Uh, and I'm not talking here about those who would love to be at worship but physically can't, or, or those who make a huge effort to be at one service uh, and join online for the other. Uh, but I simply mean those who choose to separate themselves from God's people. Corporate worship is what we were made for. It's not an added extra. Uh, and corporate, uh, bodily gathered worship it also brings us more immediately into the presence of Jesus. It brings us more immediately into the presence of Jesus. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is our worship leader. Words from Psalm 22 are quoted and applied to him. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And so in light of that, I think we have reason uh, to take verse 3 as the words ultimately of a greater king than David, calling to us, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Uh, Perhaps we can even take verse 8 as the words of the one who has tasted and seen more than anyone else that the Lord is good and who is inviting us to experience what he has experienced. In verse 9, it's Jesus himself who says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Our Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, had nowhere to lay his head. And yet hear his double testimony. Those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And we do need to hear that testimony and make sure that it is our testimony too. Are we really going to arrive in heaven and complain to God about the one thing on earth that we didn't have that would make life so much better? Well, of course not. And so if we're not going to complain about it when we get to heaven, let's not complain about it now. Think of a man in the olden days uh, travelling to a city uh, to take possession of a large estate that he had inherited. Uh, About a mile from the city one of the wheels of his carriage breaks and he has to walk the rest of the way. What would we think of him if he walked that last mile complaining the whole way about his carriage being broken? My carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, woe is me. He's going to inherit untold riches. Big deal if he has to walk a mile to get there. So it's one thing to say that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or or even to to invite unbelievers and say, if you become a Christian, don't worry about what you'll have to give up. Because it won't be like that. Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. It's one thing to, to, to say that. It's another to live as if we don't actually lack any good thing. Boys and girls, have you seen the game Hungry Hungry Hippos? Uh, We don't have that in our house, I I don't think. But you have four little hippos uh, around the board and you have to push a lever. And the lever opens the hippo's mouth. And and the the aim of the game is to to use the hippos to gather up as many little little white balls as possible. 
Well, this psalm doesn't talk about hungry hippos, but it does talk about hungry lions. Would you think that a baby lion would ever be hungry? Surely not, because their, their mummy and daddy lion could go and catch any other animal they wanted and bring the, the food home for their baby lions. But sometimes baby lions do go hungry. But our Heavenly Father will give us all that we need. The lions may go hungry, but our Heavenly Father will give us all that we need. So praise, assurance. Uh, Then uh, the last thing we want to look at from verses 11 to the end is teaching. Teaching, this teaching is addressed to children. Uh, In verse 11, come, O children. Uh, The the old uh, psalm version says, O children, hither do ye come, and unto me give ear. Uh, I find it encouraging to see the psalm writer stop in the middle of the sermon and speak to the children, just uh, as Paul does in Ephesians. Uh, Though I do think children here can include all who would come with a humble, teachable, childlike spirit. But the reference to children is particularly relevant because he's speaking in verse 12 uh, to those who would like to live a long and good life. Speaking to those that, in a sense who have their whole lives ahead of them. Maybe that raises a question. Is it unspiritual to desire a long life on earth? Can we understand, or should we understand, at least verse 12 of speaking simply about eternal life? What man is there who desires life and loves many days? Uh, Should we just apply that to eternal life? Well, uh, this is is a question, like, like so many questions that's been discussed before. It was raised in the 1500s by uh, a reformer uh, you may or may not have heard of called Wolfgang Musculus. Uh, uh, Musculus asked, is it not better to depart out of this wretched life sooner and get to our heavenly rest than to have a long life of continual trouble here on earth? And he said, no. He said that if life is a gift of God, then it is good. And that just because we experience troubles and afflictions, they don't take away from the fact that life itself is good. He says, neither is the gift of God to be wished away. Did you ever say when you were a child, I I wish I was older so that I could do this and this. Uh, And people told you, don't wish your life away. Well, that applies to adults too. Life on earth isn't God's greatest gift for us, but it is still his gift to us. And we don't show our appreciation for God's greater gifts still to come by despising the lesser gifts that he has already given us. Now, now verse 12, it's not some health and wealth teaching. It's not saying that if you live a certain way, you will have a long life. But it is telling us what the blessed life looks like. It is telling us what the blessed life looks like. And even before we get into the details, one thing that's really important to notice is that the definition of the blessed life, it does not fundamentally change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do we know that? 
because Peter quotes verses 12 to 16 in 1 Peter 3, as we read earlier. So what does a blessed life look like? In verse 13, it's to keep your tongue from evil, not just from lies, but from using our tongues to tear down. And then verse 14 is a very important verse uh, because it doesn't just say turn away from evil and then stop there. Because it, it would be possible to, to just try and live out half this verse. Perhaps some Christians even try to do so. They, they've turned from evil. They, they've stopped doing what they used to do. Or they don't do what others around them do. But the verse goes on. Turn away from evil and do good. So it's not just about stopping doing bad things. It's about doing positive good. It's almost as if. Uh, some Christians feel that Jesus is going to come back and ask them to give an account uh, as he does in the parable of the talents. And they're going to say, well, I didn't do what the non-Christians around me did. I didn't watch what they watched or go to the places that they went to or, or put into my body the substances that they put into their bodies. And can we imagine Jesus saying, well, yes, but what did you actually do with all the gifts that I gave you, all the opportunities that you had. The man in the, the parable who, who, who puts his talent in the ground, he, you know, he, he avoided evil in a sense, but he didn't do the positive good. Or to put it another way, we could ask, what is the fear of God mentioned here in verse 7, 9 and 11? And again, we could think of the fear of God as a, as a negative thing, uh, as God fearing people, as pe- people who, who perhaps sim- 